You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Looking back, 2004 was a perfect storm for the EIT program. Media leaks about the CIA's secret prison system and the EITs had begun drip by drip. On White House orders, all of it was still being kept from all but a handful of top government officials. So it was unlikely that the leaks were being sprung on Capitol Hill. Inside the executive branch, however, it was a different story. Technically, it was still a top-secret compartmented program, meaning that information about it could be provided only to officials who had a demonstrable need to know. But the reality is that every closely held secret seeps into an ever-widening audience inside the executive branch. Outside the CIA, senior national security political appointees come and go. And inside the CIA, career officers regularly rotate into and out of components conducting major covert action programs. And so no CIA covert action program was ever bigger than the CTC's hydra-headed post-9-11 offensive against al-Qaeda. In particular, the secret prison EIT program was growing like Topsy, with more high-value detainees being captured and the number and location of the prisons changing as operational requirements dictated. Leaks, in short, were bound to happen, and, as usually happens, some of the leaks were on the mark, while others were wildly off. Prisons were alleged to be located in countries where they never existed. As this book is written, the exact location of these prisons is one of the very few remaining classified facts about the program. At the same time, non-existent techniques were cited as part of the program. Still, the tidbits and sound bites were tantalizing and sinister. Black sykes, waterboarding, and the like. And let's face it, they made for great copy. That is a fantastic <laughs> bit of reading. Thank <laughs> you, boy. <laughs> Let me just say this for the first time. I'll edit this out. Yikes. <laughs> and it comes from both sides, just from what you're talking about and the fact that it was getting out. It must have been terrifying. John Rizzo spent 34 years as a lawyer for the CIA, seven of them as the agency's chief legal officer. He's a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution. His new book is Company Man, 30 Years of Crisis and Controversy in the CIA. Thank you for speaking with me, John. Thank you, Rick. This is a fascinating book, and I would like to ratchet us back. I think it's really important to understand this book, understand what you're telling us, to go back to when you first transferred from the Treasury Department to the CIA. As we read this book, we experience, I think, some of the same dualism that you found yourself experiencing when you first started in the CIA. Yeah, this was uh, the end of 1975. And the reason I uh, became interested in the CIA, prior prior to that time, uh, through my childhood and even early adulthood, I had never given CIA much thought one way or the other. I didn't know anyone at CIA. Certainly, CIA had never had any public profile. What 
what got me started, what got me down this road to CIA, was a series of uh, congressional hearings uh, conducted in 1975 called the Church Hearings, named after the chairman of the committee uh, undertaking the investigation, a senator from Idaho named Frank Church. And these were the first proceedings that basically pulled back the curtain on CIA activities during the 50s and 60s. And these were the now famous family jewels, the assassination plots against Fidel Castro, the drug use or drug experiments against uh, unwitting American citizens, just a, a parade, really, of horribles. And these hearings were, were televised. They were sensational. And like other Americans, certainly those living in Washington, D.C., I was, I, was, I was watching and reading about them avidly. And... You know, with a combination, frankly, of fascination and, and um, um, a slight case of being appalled about what I was hearing. But it did cause me to think, and at this point I was a young, you know, just two, three years out of law school in a job at the Treasury Department, which was fine, but was I was finding stultifying. I was looking for something else, and I'm reading and looking at this uh, all this crazy stuff about CIA coming out, and it thought occurred to me, I have no idea whether CIA has lawyers, but if they don't, maybe they'll need some. So that's what started me down this long, unwinding road. When you first entered the CIA, after you went through what seems now to be a pretty, although it wasn't super fast, a pretty quick and not-so-difficult transfer process, I would imagine it's much more difficult now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, from... the standpoint of where I was at the time, 28 years old, I didn't think it was a cakewalk. But looking back on it, it was far quicker and smoother than than the normal uh, transition. Uh, in my case, it took it took the background investigation, and of course, part of that is a part of that involves taking a polygraph examination, uh, medical screening. It took about uh, four months, which is actually relatively short, believe it or not. Um, it can take as long as a year or even longer. Once you arrived in the CIA, you describe it as your first experience of it as feeling like a church. I think that's really <laughs> important. Well, it is. I mean, it's it's you know, I probably didn't give it ad, do adequate justice to the to the sheer physical atmospherics of the place. Uh, it is located, as uh, I'm sure many of your listeners know, in this large, leafy. Uh, compound, really. I describe in the book as a, as a cross between a state wildlife ref- refuge and a suburban industrial park, just just over the uh, District of Columbia line in Langley, Virginia. And it's a a massive 250-acre uh, lot, heavily wooded, the, of course, heavily guarded. When you get through the two entry gates to get onto the compound, and you drive up to this looming seven-story building, and then when you get out of your car, as I did for the first time, and entered this stark, marble, quiet fortress, really, it did. It struck me as being in some sort of modernistic uh, church, which in some respects it is. You know, uh, you were what you you alerted to uh, Frank Church, and you were what came to be called one of the church babies. 
<laughs> yes, yes. Uh, no natural connection to Santa the Church, but we, uh, I did, you know, when I applied to CIA, as I say, on a wing and a prayer, it was a total shot in the dark. When I was hired, I found that they were actually, as I suspected, were looking for bringing on uh, new lawyers, uh, new lawyers that had not been in C- you know, new to the CIA. Up to that point, the CIA's contingent of lawyers was both small and very inbred. So, so the idea was I was part of this first group to try to bring in so-called fresh blood, fresh young blood. And so, uh, and because we were all there, because of the church committee hearings, we did refer to ourselves as the church babies. You know, uh, one of the things you say, you are like in your 20s. You're working at the CIA. Immediately what you find is this sense of duality sets in for you. You have this whole work experience. Most of us work a day and come home and talk about our jobs. Your job is, no matter what you're doing, you're at the CIA. It's totally fascinating. It's the stuff of big-budget action movies. It's the stuff of gnarly spy stories. It's the stuff of lore and legend. You've just got to want to talk about it. You absolutely can't. Talk about that sense of... Duality. There's there's two U's essentially from once you step in those doors. Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, it was uh, a striking and difficult experience for me to to adjust to that new duality, as you as you uh, as you put it, Rick. And it is true. You go into this, you enter into this what I call in the book this exclusive secret club that no one on the outside could really know about and understand, and. You know, it is a central intelligence agency, for God's sake. And you know, when you're in your 20s, frankly, that that's a pretty cool thing to to uh, to be a, a part of. And you become, you know, all CI people. There's no there's no apprentice period. Once you're once you're in and hired and cleared, you get to start getting exposed to secrets. And in my case, I, I was exposed early on to some very cool secrets. And the natural natural inclination, especially for a twenty seven year old kid, is to want to talk about them, to want to tell your friends about them, to want to come home and uh, talk to your wife about it, because it was so fascinating to me. But you can't. You you have to have this dual life where, when you walk in the door in the morning, you do your work, you talk to people about secret things. You only talk to people who are have the requisite clearance that you can talk about these secret things about. You go home at night, and you then become a civilian. Uh, you don't take work home with you. You certainly don't talk about work. And it's a it's 12 hours in the shadows and 12 hours being regular. And so it's, it was it was striking and, frankly, a little difficult for me to reconcile early on. You know, as we read this book, one of the things that interested me is that the things that happen in here, as as we get into it, we'll talk a little bit about it, are pretty hairy. The decisions you were forced to make are difficult and scarifying. There's a lot of unhappy and unpleasant things that you find happening to your lives. And, And we as readers find ourselves privy to this. We experience this through your eyes. And... Whether we or not feel 
sympathetic or necessarily agree with those decisions. Because we're reading them, we are sympathetic. We are you. And yet we're also ourselves. So as readers, we experience, you can read this book and experience this, a very similar, I think, kind of duality as a reader as you experienced in the CIA. And it's a really fascinating way to, to read this book, to immerse yourselves in this life. So I'd like you to talk about the kind of things, to pursue this just a little bit further, I mean, there are different levels of secrecy within the CIA itself. So there are might be things, people you can talk to about one thing, but not uh, about another. Yeah, yeah. I uh, When I said that inside CIA you talk, talk about secrets with other people in CIA who have clearances for the secrets, but that's not the end of the discussion. There is also this this concept, this this rather I think hoary and well known concept called quote need to know unquote. What that essentially means is even inside CIA there is secrecy within secrecy. You don't freely discuss highly sensitive programs. Uh, there are compartments. Everything is in a compartment, and you can only talk to CIA people about compartmented matters. You can only talk to people who are in that compartment. For example, I I got um, married for the second time, actually, in 1993. My first wife was not a member of CIA. My second wife uh, was a member of CIA. So she had the clearances. She had, but um, during from 1993 on, and certainly certainly including those fateful years after 2001, when I was involved in the most difficult and, and explosive and sensitive issues about the CIA interrogation program and the like. I did not talk to my wife much as I loved and trusted her about those things because she was not she was not clear to know about them. So so it wasn't I didn't have that kind of safety valve to talk about one with one spouse, even one in, in the CIA about about all the tough things I was going through at work. So it is it is you know very difficult and even inside the bubble uh you find yourself sometimes fairly alone. You found yourself early on working for a man who would become our president. He was uh, was he your first DO director? He he uh, this is a George H.W. Bush. He literally became director Two months uh, after I joined, I always call him my first director. But my technically my first director was a legendary uh, CIA um, uh, operative, a very complex and ed- enigmatic man named William Colby. Ooh, William Colby, there's a number, that's yeah. a familiar name. Yeah, yeah. I, I I relate early on in the book about my one and only meeting with Mr. Colby. It was actually his departure ceremony from CIA. President Ford fired uh, Mr. Colby from his job, coincidentally, just about the time I was uh, walking in the door at CIA. But I wanted to meet the man, this epic figure in CIA uh, cultural history. And so I went to the retirement ceremony. I stood dutifully in line, feeling somewhat grubby in that I'd been to CIA for a grand total of four days at that point. But I'm, I'll never forget it. I w- walked up to him, got in line, waited, shook his hand. He he looked at me blankly through these so through these. Uh, pale glasses uh, he had, impeccably groomed man, uh, 
I blurted out because I knew he was a lawyer, so I, I very awkwardly blurted out, well, I'm a lawyer too, and I just joined here, this place. I mean, I mean, just a silly, presumptuous thing for you know this rookie to say. And he, he waited, stared back at me impassively for about three seconds, and then looked at me and said, well, you're going to have an interesting time here. And that was my first and last encounter with William Colby. But no, uh, uh, President Bush 41, I always think of as my first director. Talk about those times because you came into the CIA right after one of its crises. The CIA seems to go periodically through these crises where on one hand it does something really terrible <laughs> and ill-advised <laughs> yes, and gets, yes. gets beat down. <laughs> then it something it's absolutely needed because we need those kind of services and it kind of gets built up and then it does something uh, terrible and ill-advised and gets beat down again. You came in on the heel of one of the first beatdowns. So talk about the atmosphere during the early Carter years. He came in basically to just, he wanted to just knock you right back. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. My, my career at CIA, it, basically my career at CIA mirrored the modern history of CIA from 1979 through when I left at the end of 2009. And you're right, it was my career was, was, was bookmarked and indeed pockmarked with crises and controversies and screw-ups. I mean, every two or three years, it seemed, CIA reliably managed to get itself in trouble for one thing or another. So there was a, there was a lot of ebb and flow. What it, I'll make one overall point, and I'll get I'll get into the more specifics. But you know, CIA I came to learn is a very resilient organization. There, you know, there have been times in its history uh, where where again it would get involved in something ill-advised or 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 get something badly wrong, and the cries would go up go up around the Beltway from the political and media. Well, CIA is. This time, this time they really, really messed up. CIA on its last legs. We need something else besides CIA. And so, but the CIA perseveres. It always perseveres. So, so that's a, a broad picture. Uh, uh, that that you know there have been there have been so many, so many seemingly scra- um, uh, flaps and and uh, scandals. Uh, but CIA will CIA will abide primarily, as I say in the book, because I believe all presidents, including a President Carter or a President Clinton, who initially, in Carter's case, was was I think uh, wary and skeptical about CIA. In Clinton's case, he honestly, I don't believe cared about CIA or intelligence. But they all presidents ultimately come around and and look to CIA and and rely on CIA for one thing or another because it is a president's personal instrument of secret action, and that is always be wildly seductive and tempting for any president. You know, one of the things you talk about early on are defectors and your experiences with defectors. And and this kind of blossoms out, too, until we we can talk about some of the assets that you, what what are called assets. So I'd like you to just talk about uh, some of your experiences with defectors, and, and in particular, uh, the case of uh, uh, Nosenko and James Angleton, <laughs> which is a really interesting story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I uh, that I crossed paths with Yuri Nosenko. Um, 
very early in my career, about 1978, I only been in the agency for two years. And of course, uh, by that time, however, Yuri Nisenko had been resettled into the United States, living under another name that CIA gave him. So I saw saw him as a young and still largely a green CIA lawyer. He he was in his mid-60s and at the end of a, let us say, very colorful past. So there was that generational thing. He, uh, for, for your listeners who, who may not be aware, Yuri Nisenko was a became a famous and controversial figure in his own right in the years after he defected to the CIA in 1964. The reason he became so is that he was a he had been a KGB apparatchik, and during the Cold War, uh, especially. Uh, getting an active-duty KGB officer to defect to CIA was considered gold. Even though, in general, as I say in the book, I found defectors over the years to be a enormous pain in the ass for a variety of reasons. But every once in a while, someone someone comes along that that is that is thought to be just irreplaceable. That was Nosenko. Why was Nosenko deemed irreplaceable? Because frankly, the in the KGB he was a middling figure with some personal baggage, let us say, heavy drinker and gambler. But he came over, uh, walked in, basically what we call walk in, and said that he had had access in the KGB to to Lee Harvey Oswald's file. And and keep in mind the context of the times. This was February 1964, barely four months after the assassination. And Losenko's story was that there was absolutely no connection between the CI, uh, between the KGB and Lee Harvey Oswald. That, of course, was big news uh, in early 1964. The problem that Mr. Sosenko ran into was that the head of CIA counterintelligence at that point was another equally uh, uh, complex figure named James Jesus Angleton. Mr. Angleton, who in retrospect uh, would later be uh, early discredited and in, in retrospect, frankly, was probably uh, increasingly paranoid and delusional, was still very powerful in early 1964 in CIA, and he was convinced that Nosenka was a plant, was sent by the KGB in a misdirection, what they call misdirection, sent over to to advance the view, which in Angleton's view was a lie that there was no KGB Oswald connection. So that therefore that therefore is Nosenko was was what we call what what we call in the intelligence business a false flag operation. Meant meant in Angleton's view to distract CIA from the truth, which was there was a connection between Oswald and the and the KGB, which of course you can imagine what how how portentous that would have been if that were the case. So, Angleton had the power at the time. Uh, and mind you, this was years before I joined CIA, so um, um, I was not present for any of these events. But he had the power and clout to convince the agency leadership to basically uh, um, put Lysenko in a cell and try to break him, try to get him to recant. Uh, and so they did. They put... 
Nisenko, CIA people, put Nisenko into a small, a very small, um, um, I don't know how quite to call it, a, a hovel, really, a, a, a blocked hovel where they subjected him to really brutal deprivations. But he never cracked. He did not crack. And three years later, mercifully, CIA Director Helms decided enough was enough and let Nosenko out, gave him new identity, gave him a new life, gave him a lot of money, and resettled him uh, in a bucolic southern town, which is where I met him 14 or 10 years later in 1978. And there he told you that he was the real deal, but he would never sue. He was. He was. You know, it was. It was. Uh, it was foreshadowing to my career. I mean, this was a. You know, to me at the time, this was just this a KGB figure. It was, you know, and connections to, to, a controversy about the role of Lee Harvey Oswald with the KGB. I mean, I was just, you know, honestly starry-eyed about the whole the whole. Uh, encounter. I was sent down there, by the way, for a fairly mundane reason. Uh, since Nosenko had given him a new identity, he had some legal documents he had to pr- provide to a judge about, uh, as I recall, some either his will or some land sales. So I had to go with the chambers, explain to the judge that the name on all of these documents was not the real name. So my, my mission there was mundane, but this figure was so, to me, so so utterly both fascinating and, and intimidating. Uh, and he did he did tell me during the course of a very drunken night where he forced me to to imbibe copious amounts of his homemade vodka that he was never going to sue the CIA, that he as a KGB man held no grudges against CIA, not for you know, no grudges, no complaints about the way he was treated, the way he was imprisoned, the way he was abused, frankly, because, and I can remember this to this day, he said, this is the way the intelligent business works if you don't believe someone or you believe someone's holding back information. And he said, I understand that. I knew, all I knew is that the KGB would treat me far worse than CIA ever did, that, that you people in CIA don't know what torture is. And so I'm listening to all that in 1978, the first time uh, I ever came to th- cause to think about torture, about de- depriving, uh, keeping a prisoner, depriving him of of any, you know, rights really. And this was 1978, and I would not think about those kinds of issues again uh, for another 25 years after, until 9/11. Before then, you had the opportunity to work for a man whom you create as quite a character, William Casey. And uh, Mr. Casey had a, a good friend whom we all know of as Mr. Oliver North. Had, they got some something going that was uh, extra <laughs> extra legal. <laughs> yes, the, yes this was one of those... Uh, one of the major flaps I uh, dealt with along the course of my career is the mid-'80s, yes. At the time, you had the, the dubious good fortune to be the CIA's congressional liaison 
And so you sat in front of the congressional committees and uh, essentially without a flak jacket. Yeah, this was uh, this was uh, as you as uh, you will recall the Iran Contra episode burst into public public consciousness at the end of 1986. By pure happenstance, I had shortly before taken over the role of CIA's liaison with uh, Congress on intelligence matters. So it was left to me uh, to deal with the political firestorm that ensued after the Iran-Contra story broke. And there was a special congressional committee created, a joint committee, House and Senate, televised proceedings, and among other things, made celebrities of Oliver North, uh, and let's not forget Fawn Hall in that I mix. had forgotten Fawn Hall. <laughs> it was so great to read that again. It was so, you just think, oh my God, this was our country? I guess so. Yeah, and you may recall this was, you know, you know, now that we've lived through 9-11 in the years since then, of course, that, that far suppressed anything in terms of, 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 of um, controversy uh, that I had encountered before. But for the mid-1980s, Iran-Contra was deemed a fairly big scandal. I mean, nationally televised. So it was a huge political deal uh, uh, in D.C. So all eyes are on it. And I found myself being the flat catcher between the Congress and CIA about CIA providing information, documents, secrets uh, to the Iran-Contra committee. So that was an entire year out of my life. Fascinating, but I'm sort of like going through, you know, over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Great, great to have gone through it, but I never would want to go through something like that again. You describe it as the best thing that happened to you. Yeah, yeah, I was a little career upper. I felt a little grubby about making that confession, but it it was true. I mean, it put me on the map. I mean, it was so damaging to CIA as an institution and 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 wrecked the careers of any number of CIA officials uh, that I knew and and um, liked and respected. But for me, it was a huge heady experience because it put me on the map inside the building, gave me a profile I'd never had before. And uh, and I, I, I why was given wide autonomy. Uh, frankly, most of CIA leadership after Casey, Casey had passed away on the second day of the Iran-Contra hearings. Uh, so, the, so the leadership that, that remained, which by the way included uh, Bob Gates as the acting director of CIA, mm-hmm. You know, honestly, they wanted to stay as far away from the Iran-Contra blow-up as they could, so they gave me huge autonomy to make decisions about about dealings with the Iran-Contra committee. So I had that. I was on. I was on. I was on a high wire without a net, but it was a it was a thrilling experience, as as strange as that sounds. Well, this gets back to the duality because you describe yourself sitting up there answering questions, and you're processing on the fly, on the hoof, can I tell, a say about this in uh, in an open session? Yeah, it was, it was, I describe it in the, uh, in the uh, book as an interactive, uh, before, before, uh, before that term became, entered the public uh, lexicon. I was, I was literally watching the Iran-Contra hearings, which were running, uh, you know, live full time, as as these senators and congressmen would question witnesses, including CIA witnesses, on national television, 
questions about CIA activities in the course of Iran-Contra. And I had to make split-second judgments on the fly because I would be given largely 30 seconds before a congressman and senator would ask a question. His aide would have to watch on TV. He'd hand a note to his aide behind behind him on the on the congressional dais. The aide would go running off screen, and I would put my hand on my phone because I knew what was coming. It was the aide frantically calling, saying, my guy wants to ask about this document, or he wants to ask about that station, CI station's activities. Can he do it? He's going to talk it about, in about one minute. And so I had to make a decision on the fly. Yes, he can talk about that, or no, he cannot. And, and what really interested me was you describe your good fortune. You were on the exact right side of that divide because had you been there a bit earlier, you would have been the one making those decisions. And you say, I, I probably would have gone along with Iran-Contra. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the things I make a point in my book is, I mean, I, I didn't really, I think, fully appreciate this until I was away from the uh, retirement CIA, I had time to reflect. I, I was at a number of enormously lucky breaks during the course of my career uh, that saved me, you know, in, in some cases from probably professional um, career ruin. This was one of them. As it happened, the year before the Iran-Contra scandal broke uh, and the the and the actual operation was was going on, this is the sale, secret sale of arms to Iran in exchange for hostage relief. And then Ollie North and Casey, uh, depending on whether you believe Oliver North or not, conspiring to deliver the, re, the proceeds of those arms sales to the Nicaraguan Contras in contravention of law. That That is a Cliffsnose version of the Iran-Contra operation. And had I been in my, the position I, uh, I had occupied through 1984, I would have been right in the middle of those discussions. And honestly, you know, while I would like to say now in retrospect I would have stopped that from happening, I probably would have gone, gone along. These are operations, you know, approved by, the, by President Reagan, at least the arms sales was. Uh, they were fervently endorsed by the CIA director, Mr. Casey. I, at that point, was still a, a relatively new to the agency. I mean, I was there for nine years, but I was not a senior official. I would have, I probably would have, whatever my private misgivings would have been, I probably would have gone along with all that. And and as a result, when the, when the scandal broke, I was mercifully uh, in another job, however. I had taken a year off to basically chill out and went to a, another component of CIA, which had nothing to do with any covert operations. So for that one window of time, and that was the only year I ever really got out of the mix on the all the all the covert uh, programs. But for that one year, which was basically a sabbatical for me, I avoided implic- implication in the Iran-Contra scandal. So. After that, though, you were back in the mix. You were supervising the lawyers for the DO. Those are the, the spies, the people who are pulling the secret operations. Uh, you ended up, uh, at, you confess in this book that you are part of something that got one of our very, very dirty assets killed. I'd like you to talk about that asset and I'll just describe 
these kind of because this is perilous moral stuff here. I mean, these are this is hairy ethical decisions that are hard to make. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to tell this story, which has never been told before, because it the the asset was killed as a result of a press leak, and as we all know, leaks of classified information. Uh, I mean, they existed during the course of my entire career. Leaks are nothing new. They have increased uh, um, um, continuously uh, uh, throughout my tenure. But this particular leak, of all the leaks I was aware of, made aware of, was the only one um, that 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 I can remember that indisputably caused the death of one of our CIA. Uh, assets. That's why it was so striking to me. Uh, and it and it happened way back in 1995. Uh, it it began with CIA's recruitment of a highly placed member of an international terrorist organization. Uh, the recruitment happened in the in the um, uh, mid to late 80s. This was a time you may remember when there were air airport massacres, airplane hijackings in Europe, uh, most, if not all, inspired by Hezbollah, the terrorist organization. I mean, this was in the mid-'90s. This was long before al-Qaeda mm-hmm. came into came into being. And we didn't—it's always very difficult to recruit a member of a terrorist organization, but this was not only one of our few recruits, it was our most productive recruit. And— he was so productive, and here, here, you know, one one comes in comes into view with the moral conundrums of of the spy business. He was he was so productive a source on terrorist activities. The reason he was is that he was had a established track record in conducting terrorist actions, including including one uh, bombing of a of a facility in Europe uh, uh, where CIA people. Uh, were known to, and military people. This was a this was a a bar in Europe where they were known to congregate. So he set that bomb, and he he serious the bombing seriously wounded several Americans. You describe this man as essentially uh, a sociopathic killer. Well, that's that's what he was. That's that's and he was a relatively young man. I describe I, you know, I try to give some physical sense of the people I'm talking about in the book and. And while I never met this guy, and honestly, I never knew his real name. I just always knew him by his code name. But the way he was described to me, and from reading his file, think of Al Pacino as as Michael Corleone. This is what this guy, relatively young, mid to late thirties, European in background, but a but in his in his uh, early thirties, he was a committed, ruthless, amoral killer. And then something, uh, something um, inexplicable happened. In his late thirties, uh, he suddenly, inexpl- uh, and, and without warning, really, apparently acquired a conscience. Decided he didn't want to kill anymore. That he he had been repelled by what he did. So, when I said a few minutes ago that CIA had recruited him, uh, that may have been giving CIA too much credit. He literally walked in. And he didn't ask for. He asked for, unlike some, some sources, he asked for very little in terms of money or support. He 
just decided that he wanted to change his life, and he became an active source for CIA, and which he was for several years until his identity was leaked in a uh, article published on page one of the New York Times in 1995. Shortly uh, thereafter, uh, he turned up uh, dead. Um, and while I was, well, I couldn't, because of classification concerns, get into the exact details by which CIA learned he was dead, uh, he was dead under circumstances which left no doubt that he was dead because of the his identity had been leaked in that New York Times piece. And it's the only, they say, it's the only case I can remember of all the leaks where there was a straight line between a leak and the death of a source. Clinton was a president who came late to the CIA, but when he did, he came because of a man who would, whose name would become one day much better known, uh, Osama bin Laden. I, like many, remember the uh, shellings of bin Laden's camps, which at the time they were going back and forth and accusing uh, Clinton of using that as a distraction from his impeachment proceedings. Yes, and, a wag the dog, yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> so I'd like you to talk about... Uh, now, one of the things you did as a, a lawyer, and this we, we haven't talked about this, is you were one of the guys who created the findings, which then became known as MONs. This is the piece of paper that up, up until you started in the 70s, uh, uh, this hadn't been done, but you, inst- you helped institute a, a process whereby anything that the CIA did that was pretty hairy and secret had to be signed off by the president, and you were the first person to be carrying those papers to the president. Yeah, yeah. As I say, the um, my arrival coincided with the with the birth of the modern CIA, uh, and one of the new elements of the new CIA was this notion. It was actually established by Congress by statute that the president henceforth had to personally make written what we call findings, which are which are basically directives to CIA. If he wanted CIA to do something in the covert action arena, uh, he had to personally sign a piece of paper directing us to do it. Now, when I joined, you know, there, there was no such thing, no such animal as these kinds of documents. So, uh, again, by fortuitously, I was placed in a job early on that required me to start this new process of crafting these Really, sort of extraordinary kinds of kinds of pieces of paper, where where the, the president of the United States uh, uh, would be told, if this is what you want us to do, here is a piece of paper for you to direct us to do it. Please sign at the bottom. So that's what I was involved in. Now, Mr. Clinton uh, confronted with Bin Laden and what what you had figured out Bin Laden wanted to do. Uh, uh, found himself in a quandary because, on one hand, uh, nobody wanted to put the word kill (laughs) on a document. Nobody wanted to put the word lie on a document. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had to use other words, and he was really hesitant. So talk about uh, this 
what is really the tipping point and what became, quote, the war on terrorism. You were right there and part of the paperwork process that when we went from, uh, yeah, maybe, oh, okay. And that was the first, that was the top of a very long and very slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah, this was, we're talking about a period here in beginning in 1998. I think to me the, the real signal event here that, that, that pushed the Clinton White House and, the, and President Clinton himself over the, over the line in terms of launching the first real war uh, against uh, bin Laden and al-Qaeda was the a- embassy bombings in Africa. Do you remember those? Mm-hmm. In, oh, yes. Um, Hundreds of people killed trucks up to the embassy. Yeah. Scarifying um, stuff. Yeah. That really put bin Laden, so to speak, on the map. It was, it was one of the first few acts that could be directly tied to him. So Mr. Clinton, who up to that point, I think it's fair to say, and I say in the book, was, was largely apathetic and about intelligence and CIA. Uh, he, uh, I indicate most presidents finally come around one way or the other. He came around in 1998. And uh, asked us, asked his agency, and I wound up being Scrivener, um, to come up with a presidential uh, uh, findings uh, that would uh, really put the put the jack up the jack up the ante against uh, Bin Laden, uh, including, and as you say, Rick, we're not we did not use the word killing, but lethal action. That lethal was the action, action against <laughs> against uh, Bin Laden for the uh, first time. The the complicating factor, however, there was, there was considerable trepidation and equivocation inside the White House about what that word meant and what kinds of conditions and caveats that they wanted to put on it. So it was not a dead or alive uh, kind of directive. It was far more layered and therefore far more uh, tricky and risky to carry out. Now, in... I'd like you to talk a little bit about, you know, one of the the first things that happened after 9-11 was what always happens after any kind of event like that was a lot of uh, twitchy finger pointing and uh, a lot of it went to the CIA. Why why weren't you not able to see the future? So I'd like you to <laughs> to tell me uh your, give me your take on your, – you're in there. I mean, as I understand it, there were directives being sent to the president that, that said bin Laden wants to blow things up in America. That seems pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. No, there were warnings. In that summer of 2001, uh, you know, the drumbeat of, of uh, intelligence coming in incre- increasingly indicated that, that bin Laden wanted to strike the U.S. in a, in a big way. One to attack the uh, U.S. Not not entirely clear by what means or when it would happen, or even if it would be inside the, the continental United States or at some let's say U.S. military inspo- installation involved. But it was increasingly clear from the intelligence he was planning and wanted to have some hugely spectacular act, uh, uh, terrorist act conducted. So 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 that was going on. Uh, uh, no question about it. Now, CIA did not know, obviously, the exact timing of this, did not know where. Frankly, from my perspective, I don't think we fully, none of us fully expected 
it would be as catastrophic and as, as spectacular as it as it was. So, uh, so that's the. And then nine eleven happens, and of course we all. This is twelve years ago now, but we all remember that day uh, hugely. Um, devastating day for the country. Devastating day for CIA, because obviously we had failed to stop it. We had failed to stop it. The the criticism directed both at CIA and FBI was was vitriolic. How could this have happened with respect to CIA? Why didn't you take more risks in the year against 9-11? Why weren't you more aggressive about infiltrating terrorist organizations? You were you were too timid. You were too unimaginative. You didn't take off the gloves the way you should have against bin Laden earlier than you did. So the the opprobrium, you know, was just was just coming on a bipartisan basis, and and you know, frankly, much of it was probably des- deserved. There was no getting around the fact that 9-11 happened, and CIA didn't didn't stop it. So, um, well, I'll leave it there, and then and then you can we can go through the next set of events if you'd like. Early on, you talk about uh, the capture of Abu Zubaydah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, at this point, he didn't come quietly, and. Now, now we we have somebody we can question, uh, and I'd like you to talk to me about wrapping your lawyerly mind around what was going on, because this is a very intense uh, moment atmospherically for you as as a professional, and for the you know the nation, and you're pretty much. One of the little ants that the magnifying glass is trying to burn. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is picking up the narrative from where I just uh, where I just stopped. Abu Zubaydah was the first high level Al Qaeda uh, operative captured by CIA in the post nine eleven era. It happened a few months after nine eleven in uh, uh, March of two thousand two. A period, let us remember, where the nation was in the throes of fear and dread, uh, not not terrified about if another attack w- was happening, but but when it was going to happen. And not without reason. The nine, one of the things about nine eleven is that it it gave the whole nation, I think, a sense of dualism to see how easily our own technology and our own civilization was turned against us uh, with, with a feat of imagination that we couldn't imagine. Yeah, well, that's why you know, that's why I said earlier the the I mean just the audaciousness of the attack and the and the there's no other word for it the spectacular nature of the attack against the World Trade Center and the Pentagon these iconic buildings that stood for so much was was something the CIA honestly didn't contemplate. So so that was the atmosphere though. It was just utter complete shock in the country and a a universal determination, a universal demand to to CIA that what whatever else do not let another a second attack happen. And uh, again, this is just a few months after 9/11. In the interim, we had had the anthrax letters uh, 
um, um, delivered. We had the Sioux bomber, Richard Reed, attempting to blow up another air passenger airline over the Atlantic. I mean, these are terrifying, terrifying times. And here we at CIA had just captured, as I say, the first really, quote, big fish, this, this Zubeda um, guy. And our experts knew that he was, he was not himself a, a killer, but he was the, I'm paraphr- I mean, I'm generalizing here, but he's basically the, the senior travel agent for Al-Qaeda. In other words, he would, he would if there were going to be any other imminent attacks, he would know about them because he'd be in charge in facilitating money transfers, transportation here uh, um, for for any of the actual perpetrators of any such attacks. So he would have known about it. And he was captured. He had been shot up fairly badly in the in the uh, capture in Pakistan. CIA doctors were rushed to to save his life. Not frankly for any any humane reason but we we wanted we needed to get this guy to talk he was he was the best the only source about the next attack that we really had and he wasn't talking and he made it clear to us once he once he recovered that he wasn't gonna he knew what we wanted to know and he wasn't going to tell us and there was nothing we could do to make him talk so that's what the situation came to a head uh uh, a couple of months or so after he was captured, and the agency became convinced that something else needed to be done. The some more aggressive, extraordinary measures had to be undertaken if there was any hope of getting this guy to talk. And that's how the advanced interrogation program came to be. Now, <clears throat> your name is at the top of many of what are today called the torture memos. Uh, but you were a lawyer at the time. So talk about who, how this stuff came to you because you're not there thinking of the, the actual interrogation. Um, who brought this stuff to you and under what authority since a lot of the data tells us that information obtained using this kind of questioning is that itself questionable. Right. Well, to answer your question about how it came to me, by this time uh, in my career, I'd become the chief legal advisor to CIA. So I was the top lawyer. The The actual idea to conduct a program like this, to use these kinds of techniques, came from uh, inside CIA, the counterterrorism section of CIA, which was, of course, vastly expanded uh, immediately after 9-11. A many-headed hydra, as you yeah, term many-headed it. hydra. Uh, uh, you know, the the interrogation program was was a huge part, but not the only part, really, of an unprecedented set of covert initiatives against Al Qaeda uh, in in the wake of nine eleven. I mean, and, just groundbreaking stuff. And at this time, too, you were also signing off the first drone memos. Yeah, that was that was concurrent. That was starting. That mm-hmm. was starting. Um, so, so the idea emanated inside CIA, and it was born out of desperation to come up with something to change the equation with Zubeda. So our experts brought in some some consultants who were familiar with with uh, the military training programs. 
there was something called the SEER program that had been long in existence in the military that, that was basically basically trained uh, uh, soldiers uh, as to the methods that they might expect if they were ever captured by a terrorist or, or uh, another group that was not going to abide by the rules of war. It was, it was called, for short, S-E-R-E, SEER. Waterboarding was on that list of techniques. So... Uh, and other things, too. That other, uh, uh, worse. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I guess that's one. One could make individual judgments about which was worse. It, 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 was, it was coupled with uh, a, a really a, an extensive uh, uh, degree of uh, sleep deprivation, uh, what was called walling. Attention grasp, walling, facial hold, insult slap, cramped confinement, wall standing, stress position, sleep deprivation, waterboarding, and you refer to one technique that you drew the line at. Yeah, yeah. This was a um, this was a uh, technique that I was unable to describe in more detail in the book. Uh, just parenthetically, I, um, you know, see, I had to review my my manuscript before it could be published, and so. There are there are places in the book where I where I have to be somewhat ambiguous about describing details. This was one of them. Oh, this redactions, page, but not without the black marking. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I thought that would be uh, melodramatic to include the black marking, but that was one area where I had to fuzz up the uh, details. But suffice to say that this that this particular technique that we ultimately decided not to go forward with was something out of an Edgar Allan Poe novel. I mean, it was just to me, terrifying, even more so than the waterboard. But, I mean, as it was, these techniques, you know, I mean, they were the first time I heard about them. I mean, I'd never, when the when the counterterrorism center people came and first put these ideas before me as, what do you think? I mean, I had never heard of waterboarding. I, I didn't know what it was. But the way they, as they dutifully describe each of these techniques, you know, some honestly sounded like something out of a Three Stooges routine, the facial grasp and the belly slap. But things like waterboarding and, 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 and confinement in a small box and certainly this other technique, uh, I mean, they, they, I had never heard anything, I'd never given any thought to these, anything like this. I honestly didn't know whether they constituted torture. Uh, because that is, you know, that is a statute which mercifully I'd never had to confront before in my career. But I knew enough to, to uh, my immediate reaction was, well, if, these, if some of these things don't constitute torture, if they don't come close to the line, they come pretty damn close to it. So that's what prompted me to seek uh, definitive legal review by the Department of Justice, and that's what resulted in what ultimately became known as the uh, torture memos, and all, of course, were addressed to uh, yours truly. You describe your decision to go along with this, and I'd like you to just go take us back because, again, this is where a lot of this stuff, now we're looking at this and saying, yes, this this is torture, yikes, this is terrifying. Yeah. I'd like you to just... Put us uh, uh, in your mind where you were, because it took you a couple days to make that decision, didn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, as I say, my first reaction. This was, you know, I mean, I guess best word for it. I, I was gobsmacked when when I was told about 
these proposals. I mean, they they were they were just suddenly presented to me. Uh, I mean, the one the one thing you know people I mean need to need to keep in mind is the times the times are operating. This was a few months after nine eleven. Um, uh, you know that the time was of the essence. Uh, everybody thought that. Everyone knew that. Everyone insisted on that. That that another attack, which everyone assumed was was possibly just around the corner, uh, had to be avoided, had to be stopped, had to be deterred at all costs. Uh, and that was across. That was the consensus across the political spectrum. So so. You know, here I am, being told that these these techniques, our our experts had determined that these techniques were the only ones that were going to bring that kind of threat information out of Zebeda. And as I noted in the book, I mean, I I was the chief legal officer. These had not left the building yet. I could have squelched them right then and there. I could have, because I you know I'd been CIA long enough to know. Uh, uh, that that you know when something was going to be described to me that it was going to get the agency in big trouble sometime. I mean, I'd been through enough of those crises before. I could you know, develop a sense for it. As soon as I heard about the, of what what they wanted to do, the waterboarding and the rest of it, I mean, I knew this was big, going to be big time trouble. So you know, I could have squelched them. I could have gone to the CIA director and said, "Look, we can't do this. We shouldn't do this." This is immoral, or this won't work, or this sooner or later is going to come out. Uh, but then I thought about the about the ramifications of a decision like that. What if I had done that, and what if, as a result, Abu Zubaydah continued to stonewall? And what if there had been a second catastrophic attack against the homeland, and and what if Abu Zubaydah then gleefully told our CIA interrogators, see, I knew all about this, and you didn't get me to talk? Because these were, you know, Zubaydah and his, and his compadres that we would later capture. I mean, these are ruthless, remorseless psychopaths. I mean, it, you know, they would have taken great pleasure. Zubaydah would have taken great pleasure in, in that, he, that he got away with this. And so there would have been... Who knows? Bodies on the streets, lying in the rubble, somewhere, hundreds, thousands. And in the postmortems, the investigation would have uncovered that yes, the CIA thought they were gonna they needed more to get the information out of this guy's beta who had it. They could have stopped this attack, but they flinched. They were they were you know, hold for it, risk averse. And I would have known that I was the guy who was responsible for that. And at least in part responsible for the for the uh, for the for the uh, catastrophe, the second catastrophe. And in the final analysis, in the day or two I had to consider all of this, uh, I determined that that if that scenario were to play out, that I simply couldn't count count on the thought of having to live with that. Let's fast forward a little bit to the the upshot which was the predictable the exactly what you predicted it all went very wrong we didn't get any earth-shattering information out of these guys uh there was no like 
big reveal of they were going to do this or any of that. Maybe maybe that's happened. We've heard various conflicting reports. Everybody says, oh, we needed to do that, but nothing. We haven't seen any hard evidence of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we of course, what the hard evidence that did come out was of the most embarrassing and terrible and awful kind. In the in the wake of the terrible photographs of Abu Ghraib, uh, talk about what what happened with the torture tapes and your involvement in that. <laughs> this is how you begin the book. I, I, yeah. I think you wanted to take. I'm guessing that when you put this at the beginning, just to get it over with, both for the reader and yourself. Well, I I put in, I put it, I wanted to set I wanted to set the tone of the book for the for the kind of atmosphere of constant crises I found myself uh, and post nine eleven and the and the torture tapes was sort of the apotheosis of my of, of the kinds of crises I had to deal with. It came, you know, it came in the in in the twilight of my career in the post nine eleven era. So I wanted to hit the reader. With the really a, a sort of a casebook example of the fundamental conundrums that, that the CIA lawyer has to has to confront, so that's why that's why I let it off that way, and then the rest of the book, uh, you know, then we flash back to my innocent young days, uh, thirty years later when I earlier when I first entered CIA, and then rolled out the story from there, and of course picked it up again later in the book. Picked up again the post nine eleven years. The um, the the uh, what happened was, and you're you're right. I mean, what I suspected, assumed was going to happen, did happen. That the political culture, political wind shifted as years went by. Uh, there there was no second attack, which is of course a, a blessed thing on the homeland. So so as a result, you know. As, as 9-11 became more of a distant memory, uh, the public mood, the congressional mood shifted from protect us at all all costs, the, you know, what was there in the early months after 9-11 to years later as the interrogation program other other things started leaking. Wait a minute, wait a minute, what the hell have you guys been doing? Uh, and that's, that's the situation that inevitably took place. But you know the fact there wasn't a second attack. Again, that's the, I mean that's the ultimate good news. I do uh, I do wonder sometimes reflecting on those years. Let us say you know pick up the narrative. I did I did let the the, the interrogation program uh, proceed. Justice Department let us say did what they did, which is to approve it. So the program started uh, on Zebeda. And um, and he didn't talk. Let's say let's say the the techniques didn't work. They still wouldn't talk. And then there's the second attack they knew about. Same gleeful reaction from him. In the postmortems, I promise you, what the reaction in Congress and the media would have been about the interrogation program was: Is this all you were doing? Is this? <laughs> how'd you expect him to talk when you just you know you just this half-hearted program? I mean, I promise you. I promise you that that's what it would have been the reaction. In other words, the moral of this story, Jeff, I think we would have been screwed one way or the other down the road because of this program, I mean, institutionally. Mm-hmm. So be that as it may, there was no second, second attack. 
the program became politically toxic. Uh, but I mean, all of this, you know, honestly goes with the territory. I mean, I became a, you know, in the twilight years of my career, a, a controversial public figure, notorious in some quarters. Um, I think that has to do with hindsight being, well, we're all told that hindsight is preternaturally clear. I think sometimes it's not as clear as we believe it. Yeah. Well, we all, you know, human nature wants things to be more clear uh, in in hindsight, um, just like human nature wants there to be conspiracies that, mm. uh, that someone had to have killed President Kennedy. Couldn't have been this lone loser. You know, it's got to, had to have been a plot. I mean, something in our, I think our national psyches sometimes finds it more comforting to 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 look at things in retrospect and see a see a see a, a, a strand that's not there. We want to see a face in the clouds. Yeah. And assume yeah. it's divine. Yeah. Again your point about you know, the the the, the debates, the controversy about whether these techniques worked or not. You know, they I am convinced I am convinced from from, from watching the results of the this program, which keep in mind lasted for six years. That there were that there there was valuable, very valuable information derived from these from the interrogation program and the people it was applied to. Now, the question, which I think is unknowable, is that were these was this program the sine qua non for eliciting this information? In other words, if these techniques had not been used, would would the the detainees ultimately provided the same information, as as you know, there's been you know there there are several former officials, the former interrogators, FBI, who were convinced that they would have they would have gotten the same mis, uh, information without resorting to these kinds of uh, measures. Yeah, I think that's I mean it's unknowable. I can't I can't tell you. I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't contend that nothing nothing would have this was that the Interrogation program was the only way this intelligence could have been obtained. I don't know that. I don't know that anybody knows that. But, but I also don't know that if it hadn't been used, let's say that the the inf- same information would have been listed. How long would that have taken? I mean, surely these hardened terrorists were not going to blurt out secrets, uh, you know, right away, or within within a, a short time frame. And and again, flashing back to the time, and early, this was early two thousand two. Time was the one thing that no one thought we had. Time was of the essence. We had to get this inf- the information quickly. So, I mean, it's a complicated, a complicated uh, look back. But I, I uh, well, one of the things you talk about too a little bit, you allude to this is, and I think this is an interesting moral discussion is the uh, interaction between the drone program and this. The torturing program, essentially, is it better to kill them by remote control or torture them yeah. until they talk? That's an interesting moral conundrum. Yeah, and you were the author of both programs. Yeah, I, I found it ironic. Um, uh, tell you the truth, I didn't find it ironic at the time because I was too busy that I was not able to to step back uh, uh, and look at this, but. Keep in mind the the interrogation program started at approximately the same time the drone program began in two thousand and two. 
Uh, and as the years went by and and the interrogation program became you know more controversial, subject of uh, you know intense intense criticism debate from Congress from human rights groups, the drone program was proceeding apace, and you know terrorists were getting getting blown to bits from from the sky, and it wasn't like it was unknown. I mean, these things were being reported in the media as they were happening. But yet, but yet, yet think back. During those years, 2000, really, until until just a year or two ago, all of these drone attacks were taking place. As I say, it was not really hidden from the American people. I mean, it was a classified program, but everyone could see the results. But all that time, while, while all this all this, all this harsh, harsh criticism was directed against a program of aggressively interrogating terrorists. At the same time, there was not there was not a, a scintilla of public uh, public outrage about killing them, uh, which I, which I found, as I say, ironic uh, uh, in retrospect. It was only in this past year or so. So so, what is it? Apparently, it was considered more legally. Uh, justifiable and morally defensible to kill a terrorist than it was, on the other hand, to capture and harshly uh, interrogate a terrorist. So, I mean, I think that's something to ponder. I've been speaking with John Rizzo. His new book is Company Man, 30 Years of Controversy and Crisis in the CIA. Thank you for joining me, John. Well, thank you, Rick. I enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.